Wherever people are denied access to political representation, cultural representation becomes a politics by other means. People didn't necessarily believe that you could use Yiddish effectively to write literature. Was it not just some very bad version of German that Jews happened to speak? The emancipation of Yiddish as a literary language is really one of the most important developments of Jewish culture in the 19th century. Language becomes the mode of address for a nation in the making. Postcolonial theory is a lot of things. <laughs> a global theory of understanding the modern world through the mechanisms, the abuses, the resistance to colonization. Yiddish literature offers us an early and distinctive critique of the processes of modernity. Yiddish literature functions as a post-colonial literature. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation because, well, it's the mitzvah. I have a long and complicated history with Fiddler on the Roof. My first memory is of watching the 1971 film at my aunt's house as a child. From the moment Chaim Topol appeared on the screen to tell the audience about his little shtetl, Anatevka, I felt lost. My papa never said daily prayers. My mama didn't make a kosher home. No one in the household made time to read the holy book. I wasn't yet 10 when I saw the film, but there was no talk of me learning a trade. My sister did mend and tend and fix, though. But overall, Tevye's traditions weren't my own. As a child, I didn't understand the message of the film. The disruptions occurring around Tevia that the milkman couldn't foresee and spent the better part of three hours confronting in wave after wave of social, cultural, and political change. I couldn't see that I was the outcome of this change and the embodiment of what it looks like when tradition erodes and even disappears. I just didn't like the film. I didn't like how watching it was different from watching other films as a child. It wasn't presented as entertainment. It was meant to instill. It was didactic, with the message being that this is who we are. This is where we're from. These are your people. Now feel connected, but also feel sad. Also, you should yearn for this world, but still be thankful that we weren't born into it. I would take a long hiatus from Fiddler after that. I might reference it now and again years later in some half-baked comment about the problems of nostalgia. But even though I felt smarter than Fiddler, even though I didn't want to lament the loss of Anatevka and a world where rules were clear and roles were set, I would find myself struggling to latch onto ways of being Jewish. I came to dislike this detachment from Judaism and from its community and from different Jewish modes of expression. I found myself making pilgrimages to New York City with my mother. We'd walk East Houston Street, and after a few hours, I'd feel satiated 
like I had restored a sense of membership to Jewish peoplehood, thanks to the food offered at Katz, Russ and Daughters, and Yona Schimmel's. Unrelated to all of this were my grad school pursuits. After spending time living in the Middle East, I became engrossed by Arab intellectual history, particularly the history of al Nahda, the Arab Renaissance of the 19th century. I'd read the English translation of the memoir written by the Egyptian sheikh Rafa' al-Tahtawi, who traveled to France and became enamored by the prospect of transferring what he learned in France about education and French society to his community in Cairo. I read the novels of Najee Mahfouz and felt electrified by novels like the Cairo Trilogy and Cairo Modern. These books were all about changing places and changing people. Characters personified different intellectual movements. There were Islamists who responded to change with religion, liberalists who embraced the change and all the prospects that it offered for individuals, socialists who could only see exploitation, nationalists who redefined their sense of community because of this change. And then there were the nihilists that Mahfouz wrote about, people who lost meaning and purpose, all because of the changing world around them. So when I go on to take a class about representations of Jews in film and fiction, and when during the first week of class, we read a selection of short stories by Shaw Malechem, the short stories that would inspire Fiddler on the Roof, I really couldn't believe what I was encountering. At that time, I was really in love with Middle Eastern studies. I was also ambivalent about being Jewish. But with and through Shaw Malechem, I saw characters grappling with a world that was becoming less insular and on the cusp of disintegrating because of opportunities and threats. It reminded me of what I saw with Tahtawi returning to Egypt from France. I saw that same concern about change, modernity, in what it was that Shah Malachem was writing about. I felt Naji Mahfouz in Shah Malachem's writings. Because I encountered this literature, I could now understand my discomfort when watching Fiddler on film as a child. I could relate because I was living what it meant to be on the other side of this cusp of change. I never wrestled with existential questions of change felt by a Yiddish-speaking person in the shtetl, one who had internalized communal expectations, only to see them upended. Those expectations never existed for me. They had been upended well before I even came to be. I knew nothing else but a world of expectations like this being very, very past tense. So, perhaps better yet, it's not that I didn't have to wrestle with these existential questions. I had to wrestle with a very different set of questions for someone who is fully modern, very assimilated, and kind of in many ways nominally Jewish, but who wants to have more substance than just the name itself. So when I learned that Fiddler on the Roof was being staged in Yiddish on Broadway, I felt compelled to see it. I felt compelled to see it twice, actually. Sitting in the theater, I only understood a few words here and there throughout the entire performance. Most of the Yiddish was unintelligible to me. But that didn't matter. I could see Fiddler performed in the language of Shalom Alechem. That felt political. That was a stance. 
it was a declaration that we are here, we exist, and that there's no need for translation. The choice in language for that performance, it wasn't arbitrary. It was deliberate to stage a play in 21st century New York in Yiddish. So coming out of that experience, I wanted to learn more about the Yiddish literature that brought me into that moment of seeing a theatrical performance in America staged in Yiddish. I was curious about Yiddish as a language, Yiddish literature, and why this particular creative medium matters. And I wanted to know more about all the issues and ideas that were communicated via Yiddish literature. So I spoke with Mark Kaplan, a visiting professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College. I was floored by the parallels between me and Mark. He's a native of Louisiana, not exactly a center of the Yiddish-speaking world. While I was born in a predominantly Irish Catholic town, also itself lacking a robust Yiddishkeit, Mark earned his PhD in comparative literature at NYU. I can't claim the same, but we do both share an interest in teasing out commonalities of experience, whether it's between African Americans and Africans and Jews, or Arabs and Muslims and Jews. In any case, Mark was who I wanted to learn from when it came down to better understanding Yiddish, its literature. And in the process, maybe even coming to understand more about that sense of alienation and affinity that I felt for Yiddish, for Fiddler on the Roof, each time that I returned to the film or the play or the writings of Sean Malachem in one form or another. So let's listen to Mark and learn about Yiddish and Yiddish literature. Yalla, let's learn together. My name is Mark Kaplan, and I am a native of Louisiana. I grew up in an English-speaking home. I began studying Yiddish when I started graduate school. Before we get into Yiddish and Yiddish literature, let's get a sense from Mark of what compelled him to study comparative literature and to focus so much of his own scholarly life on Yiddish. I think that what attracted me to that study was an effort to understand my own modernity to understand my own sense of dislocation both from where I had come from and where I had found myself. And every class that really resonated with me in terms of the study of modern literature amplified those terms, helped me to explain myself to myself. And the most profound juncture in this journey was stumbling on African literature. And it literally was stumbling. I showed up to the wrong classroom. And after about 20 minutes, I realized this wasn't the class I thought I had signed up for, but it was a lot more interesting than what I thought it would be. So I ended up studying a course called the African Novel in English. And there was just something very urgent. This seemed to me to be really the most vital, the most alive, the most expressive literature that I'd ever encountered. So I took a class called The Transformation of the Jews in the Modern Era. 
and it was the first time I'd ever read Yiddish literature in translation. And what I saw at that moment was a group of writers who were really posing some of the same political and philosophical and psychological questions that I had found in African literature. And the idea of bringing a sensibility that had been trained in African studies and post-colonial theory to the study of Yiddish struck me as being new and very exciting. So Mark talks about post-colonialism, but what exactly is that? And what does it even have to do with Jews in Eastern Europe? What does it have to do with Yiddish literature? Isn't post-colonialism only really relevant when thinking about Martinique or Algeria? and the struggles to throw off European empires? I think that one can characterize post-colonial theory as an effort at understanding how fundamental the imperial project has been to the construction of modernity in a political, in an economic, in a technological sense. And it's a way of restoring and integrating the perspective of people who have been dislocated, who have been marginalized. One of the assumptions is people that we are conquering, the people that we are imposing our culture, our administration, our institutions on, these people have no history. That we're ultimately doing them a favor because we are bringing them into civilization. The perspective of post-colonial theory is to say these people do have a history, and it's an urgent field of inquiry. So how does this connect with Yiddish studies? We see that Yiddish as a language and as a culture really concentrates in Eastern Europe by about the beginning of the 18th century. a relatively stable political arrangement among Poles and Lithuanians and Ukrainians and various ethnic groups, including Jews, which granted each of these groups an extraordinary degree of autonomy in terms of the governance of their local institutions, the maintenance of their culture, their language, their religious traditions. This is radically disrupted. 1772 to 1795, that commonwealth of collective interests that we would refer to as Poland, that area ceases to exist. It's incorporated into three larger empires, the Prussian Empire, the Austrian Empire, the Russian Empire. Basically, the Yiddish-speaking world is divided into the Austrian Empire and the Russian Empire. At that point, in my opinion, the history of Yiddish culture is literally a post-colonial history because our day-to-day life as Yiddish speakers in the 19th century now becomes a question of our relationship to an imperial state. The disruptions that Mark talks about are also part of the experience of modernity. But again, what exactly is this thing, modernity? Is there some modern condition? What about modernity has thrilled and excited, but also been disruptive for the lives of Jews, 
for the lives of Yiddish speakers? When we think about modernity, we think about the evolution of political forms away from feudal structures, away from absolute monarchy toward modes of representational government, the evolution of a concept of what it means not to be the subject of a king or an emperor or a pope, to be the citizen of a nation state. We understand the evolution of families from a multi-generational, most uh, tribal structure toward the idea, the modern ideal of what we would call the nuclear family. We understand all of these institutional, technological, political manifestations of modernity as varying modes of organization or definition that hinge on a philosophical recognition that it is the philosophical subject that constitutes the basic unit of society. What I am is an individual, a person, a human being, and my humanity is measured politically by my citizenship in a nation state. Modernity seems like it has lots of opportunities for an improved quality of life. Movement from feudalism to citizenship, a sense of individual subjectivity, and of individual humanity, well, all of that sounds like it would be quite alluring. But how does modernity and the changes that it brought to people as members of nations, of states, what does that have to do with post-colonialism, which is all about a declaration that communities exist and have culture and identity, that they have depth, that they deserve recognition, that they deserve attention, and not only a sense of being less than, of being inferior? Why wouldn't modernity simply be a welcoming force for Yiddish-speaking Jews? Ultimately, these statuses, these institutional uh, affiliations, only apply to a somewhat limited number of people. Yiddish culture constitutes itself as a post-colonial culture because the efforts of a Yiddish-speaking Jewish person in the 19th century in Eastern Europe are going to be as shaped by their exclusion from the society's understanding of what modernity is as someone living in Africa or in you know, parts of South America or you know, a Native American or an African American in the United States, that this same sense of dislocation and dispossession is going to define their understanding, their interaction with modernity. Okay, so how do we see the exclusion from modernity and all that it entails playing out in Jewish literature? What's an example that we can look at of Jewish literature that epitomizes a post-colonial expression? The first great novelist to work in the Yiddish language is known as Mendela Meichersfager. Mendel of the bookseller. Mendel of Meichersfarm's actual name was Sholem Yankov Abramovich. He lived from about 1835 till his death in 1917. And he wrote about the predicament of Eastern European Jews in the 19th century. One of the best of these novels is known in Yiddish as Dikliache. In Hebrew, it's called Susati. Both of these titles translate as the mare. 
And the premise of the novel is a young Jewish intellectual named Yisrolik, Little Israel. Little Israel wants to become a Russian university student. And he devotes his entire life toward becoming a university student. And he studies and he tries to learn mathematics and he tries to learn science. And these subjects are not so difficult for him. But what's really hard for him is studying the Russian language, Russian literature, and Russian history. He winds up going crazy. And in his deluded hallucinatory state, he begins to talk to a mare, to an old Yiddish-speaking female horse. And the mare tells him, you know, I used to be like you. I used to be this beautiful person. I was transformed into an ugly mare. And I want to tell you what it's like in my degraded situation as a horse around other horses, being discriminated from other horses, other horses telling me that my horseness is not the equal of theirs. They tell me I have to prove that I'm worthy of being accepted the way everybody else is. I'm not going to be exploited by these other horses to prove my worth. Either I'm worth something as I am, nobody's worth anything. The horse becomes the spokesperson for a kind of post-colonial critique of subjectivity. It's really remarkable. And it's that explicit. It's the first effort, I think, at a modern Jewish intellectual really beginning to question the assumptions of the modernity that he himself had been expressing his faith in its transformative power for two decades, and all of a sudden saying, well, maybe modernity is not going to deliver us the way we thought it would. And maybe modernity poses for us a series of problems that we have not yet been prepared to confront honestly. All of these ideas of modernity that Mark's talking about, does it really matter that they were communicated in Yiddish? Is this language incidental to the experience of Jewish modernization? Or is the medium part of the message? At the time of his career, 90% of the Jews living in the Russian Empire count Yiddish as their primary language. Not Russian, not Polish, not German. What Mendele is doing at this point is he's taking advantage of linguistic resources that the Yiddish language possesses that no one had ever credited as maintaining, and he is using Yiddish in a way that is going to speak candidly and cleverly and creatively toward the predicament of Jews in a way that no one else had ever had the boldness or the insight or the creativity to do before. So this is what creates a really tremendous watershed in the development of modern Jewish literature. With the literary production that Mark's talking about, how was Yiddish as a language understood? As it emerged as a potent form of expressiveness, was Yiddish seen as an important and valuable part of European and world literature? Yiddish has to struggle 
for the acknowledgement that it even is a language. This is not a widely recognized or agreed upon concept, really until around World War One, The predicament of the Yiddish language parallels a larger political predicament of Yiddish speakers. And their investment in a Yiddish cultural politics takes the place of a more conventional means of political representation that had been denied to them most specifically in the context of the Russian Empire. What was life like for Yiddish-speaking Jews before all these predicaments of modernity? If modernity and the exclusion of Jews from the nation and the lack of political power for Jews were among all of these disruptive forces, well, what exactly was it that was being disrupted? The position of Jews in Eastern Europe for several hundred years was one essentially of autonomy. We reproduced social institutions. We continued to defer to religious authorities. There was very little interference in terms of day-to-day life, in terms of you know how we married, how we divorced, who determines whether meat is kosher. There was nothing that the non-Jewish world held out to Jewish people as being more attractive than the patterns of tradition that were replicating themselves within Jewish livelihood. There was very little industrialization, very little urbanization. So life was essentially continuous. In the historical era that I'm talking about that begins in the 1770s, there are profound disruptions to this understanding of Jewish autonomy. And that's when people begin to realize There are books that are being published in Russian and in German and even in Latin that we need to gain access to. There is a value to understanding modern theories of mathematics, modern theories of science, modern theories of medicine that we did not have access to before this year, whether it's 1790 or 1810 or 1870. The disruption of traditional autonomy results in a redefinition of intellectual goals that inevitably influences these same Jewish intellectuals engaging with these new ideas, prompting them to redefine their understanding of what Jewish nationhood is. Nationhood, peoplehood, selfhood, these are concepts that begin in Western Europe, in England, in France, in the German-speaking world, over the course of the 17th and the 18th century. They're catching up with processes of modernization that had already been developing for decades and for centuries prior in other parts of Europe. So when it came to Jewish political culture, intellectual culture, and literary culture, who were the people who were involved in these discourses? Who was it that was responsible for inspiring and moving forward this production of creative works, these critiques and expressions that Mark's talking about, was this some elite circle from which Yiddish literature emerged? The concept of elite is a tricky one when everybody is politically disadvantaged. The primary producers and consumers of this modern literature are what we would define as an intellectual elite. These are people with very extensive traditional Jewish education 
with a lot of time on their hands and very little in the way of communal responsibilities. This enables them to pursue modern education in non-Jewish languages. It encourages them to adopt non-Jewish ideas toward a Jewish mode of expression and a mode of consumption, to write an essay in Hebrew, to write a poem, to write a short story in Yiddish. Those are the people who are attracted to these modern ideas. Now, in terms of circulation, by the end of the 19th century, when you're talking about the heyday of a writer like Mendel and Michael or his compatriots, these writers have a very, very wide circulation as soon as they come out. And even people who themselves might lack the literacy to read a whole story, they would have the stories read to them by somebody in their household who could read them. And when that household had finished reading the newspaper or the journal where the story appeared, they'd pass it on to their neighbors. So there were informal networks that amplified the distribution of this literature beyond just the people who could afford to buy the magazines or the people who had the knowledge to read them. When thinking of Yiddish culture, I don't only think of Eastern Europe. I think of people like Abe Kahan. New York City comes to mind. But why do I even have such associations with Yiddish and literature in the United States? Can we think of Yiddish literature as having more of a global reach? Different nodes across the world of creative centers? Yiddish in the United States is as important from about the 1890s until the present day, as it is in Eastern Europe. The Eastern European Yiddish readership is paying attention to the Yiddish literature that's produced in New York City from a very early point. Yiddish writers in Europe are taking their cues from Yiddish writers in the United States and vice versa. There is an international circulation of texts and ideas and aesthetic trends that establishes the United States, in particular New York City, as a cultural center for Yiddish culture. The poet's name is Aaron Leilis, and the name of the poem is Manhattan Bridge. Manhattan Bridge, Manhattan Bridge. Two turbid streams in a confluence of a sun's glare. Two muddy, splashed feet, and above them, a patrician head. The Boyere came from Chinesisch Theater, home of the Chinese theater of bombs and missions. Canal Street, the row of cheap Jewish trade are linked and locked in their screeching rush by a sparkling buckle, the ornate portal of Manhattan Bridge, a finkelnder schnall, der geschmuckter portal von Manhattan Bridge. Canal Street and Bowery, sing your joy to the sky, roar drunkenly your glory in the couplets of Lower Broadway, your pride in Woolworth, municipal, in so many temples of business, shining suns for your smudged windows, elaborate cornices of refined riches for your poor. Real temple for business. Grayness, but above all, raise your voice in a grateful M for the joy of being best men to Manhattan Bridge. 
Nor hecher von alts hebt uf eier stimm in dankbaren Himmel, vor dem Glück, was die Unterführer seinen ihr zu Manhattan brick. Of all the examples of Yiddish literature in the United States that Mark had at his disposal to choose from, why did he choose to share this poem? What does it evoke for him? And how does that actually connect to what we've been discussing so far about modernity? I think that I was always very, very excited by that sense of discovery when a person awakens to his or her own modernity. You know, this poem is very exciting to me because, to a certain extent, it feels like how it felt the first time I was walking the Lower East Side or Lower Broadway in Manhattan. And so it was a sense of validation that you have to go out of the English language to recapture that sense of what is new about your own experience. Laelis, this poet who's writing this semi-ironic ode to Manhattan, Bridge is one of Yiddish literature's great rhymers, and it is exceedingly difficult to reproduce his rhymes. The translator of this poem didn't even try to replicate the rhymes. Now, we get the sense of the words, we get the range of the cultural references in translation. What we don't get, unfortunately, is the musicality of the poem. That's only something that we can appreciate and revel in when we can read the original. Now that he's taught us about Jewish modernization and helped us see the ways that we can read Yiddish literature through a post-colonial lens, what are his final thoughts about the importance of studying Yiddish literature? What about it continues to animate him as he goes about this work as a writer, as a scholar, and as a teacher? What Yiddish provides us that I don't think any other language does in quite the same way is an insight into the way that a Jewish civilization encountered its own modernization. Yiddish is the ideal framework through which European Jews express their own modernity. That's interesting to me. That gets me out of bed. When I began studying Yiddish literature, I studied with a scholar named David Roskies. David Roskies had studied with a scholar named Max Weinreich. Max Weinreich heard Mendela Moichesvarum lecture in Vilna in 1912. The connection to the origins of Yiddish-speaking modernity are that close. It's only three degrees of separation between me and the origins of Jewish modernity. That's something that's really, really irreplaceable. And it's something that I try to pass on to my students in terms of creating a fourth degree, not of separation, but of connection to the origins of this civilization. A special thanks to Mark Kaplan. It was a real treat talking to you. If you're interested in learning more about Yiddish literature and the comparative literary analysis that Mark does, check out Mark's books. He's the author of How Strange the Change, Language, Temporality, and Narrative Form in Peripheral Modernisms, published by Stanford University Press. He's also the author of Yiddish Writers in Weimar Berlin, A Fugitive Modernism, published by Indiana University Press. This episode featured music from the Klezmer band, Ezekiel's Wheels. Thanks to Abigail Reisman, 
who plays violin in Ezekiel's Wheels, for being in touch throughout the production of this episode. To learn more about Ezekiel's Wheels, visit ezklesmer.com. And to learn more about Abigail Reisman's work, visit abigailreisman.com. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy in Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warburgcreative.com. And to learn more about his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazara. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Bashufaku. We'll see you next time.